Welcome to Aquafarm. I'm your host, John Bazaar, coming to you from my office here at the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy, where I am an associate professor of pharmacy practice. Uh, and I'd like to thank uh, the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy for supporting this podcast. We have a lot to get to today. I'm going to talk about some updates in uh, the treatment of elderly patients with acute myeloid leukemia, AML, as well as some uh, maybe lower tier updates, and then a big new approval for. Um, uh, the FDA's second site or tissue agnostic indication. We're going to talk about that, but first, let's talk uh, Glastigip, which is a hedgehog inhibitor that was approved on November 21st in combination with low-dose cytarabine, low-dose ARC, for newly diagnosed AML for those over the age of 75 years or older or who had comorbidities that basically precluded them from intensive chemotherapy with something like 7 plus 3. Uh, by the way, the dose of low-dose cytarabine used was 20 milligrams as a flat dose subcutaneously uh, BID for 10 days of a 28-day cycle with continuous uh, use of glastogen. Uh, the approval is based on the BRIGHT AML 1003 study, which accrued 115 patients that had newly di- diagnosed AML with one of four conditions, being above 75, which was a condition, uh, or severe cardiac disease, which would preclude the use of an anthracycline in 7 plus 3, an ECOG performance status of 2, uh, which would basically be a patient who is impaired to the point that they have to sit down or lie in bed up to but not more than 50% of the day. So someone who spends quite a bit of their waking hour um, sedentary, uh, or a serum creatinine of 1.4. So you'd have one of those four criteria. And they were randomized two to one, so more patients um, were on the glastogen arm, 100 milligrams uh, with or without food once daily continuously with low-dose ARC or low-dose ARC alone, uh, which is something that, which is, you know, kind of a standard treatment option if you're not going to uh, try uh, high-dose or intensive chemotherapy in these patients or a hypomethylating agent like azacitine would have been the other treatment option, another fair comparator. Uh, after a median follow-up of 20 months, the median overall survival was about four was four months longer in the glastogen arm. So 8.3 months compared to 4.3 months. So uh, that that's a hazard ratio of 0.46. So you know, basically, a, you know, a doubling in the improvement um, and decreasing the risk of death. Death that is statistically significant. Uh, so we do have, you know, an overall survival benefit, a normal regular approval for glastogen. Uh, by the way, the complete response rates were 18.2% in the glastogen arm compared to 2.6% in the low-dose cytarabine-only group, and that was not statistically compared. So I mentioned the dose is 100 milligrams uh, PO daily. It can be taken without regard to meal, so with or without food. And this is a hedgehog pathway inhibitor. Yes, hedgehog, like Sonic the Hedgehog. Legend has it, the scientist who discovered his pathway, uh, his kid was really into Sonic the Hedgehog, the old Sega game. Uh, that's the legend, and it's as good as anything else. So let's 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 stick to that. This is the third hedgehog inhibitor on the market. The other two are vismotajib and sinitajib, both of which are approved for um, basal cell carcinoma, which is a type of non-melanoma skin cancer. So this is the first hedgehog inhibitor that's approved uh, outside of a non-melanoma skin cancer condition. Uh, so this actually, well, all of these bind to smoothened. Um, which is a transmembrane protein in the hedgehog pathway uh, that's involved in signal transduction. And the hedgehog pathway is highly active during embryogenesis, uh, embryonic development, and then it's silenced in healthy cells after that. 
but can reemerge or can become activated in certain cancer cells. One of the theories in acute myeloid leukemia is that this pathway is upregulated and this is a mechanism of resistance, especially in leukemic stem cells, which can be quiescent or not dividing, uh, and then maybe um, that could be a possible mechanism of resistance to chemotherapy. Uh, so speaking of the hedgehog pathway's role in embryonic development, there are three boxed warnings for this drug. Uh, embryo-fetal death and birth defects, uh, pregnancy testing required for females of childbearing potential taking this drug that's approved for AML 75 or older or comorbidities that prevent them from uh, intensive chemo, and the males need to be advised to use condoms or a barrier method uh, if engaging in sexual intercourse with a woman of childbearing potential. Boxed warnings for a disease that is solely uh, an indication solely based on the elderly, um, but things that we should not forget. Um, there is also a warning precaution for QT prolongation. A QT prolongation um, of more than 500 milliseconds occurred in 5%, and 4% had a 60 millisecond increase in QT interval. So it's recommended to have an EKG at baseline or ECGL as long with standard electrolyte monitoring like potassium and magnesium. Uh, there are um, dose reductions, so the, the drug should be held uh, if the QT uh, interval reaches 500 milliseconds and then restarted at a 50% dose reduction when it um, at 480, mil, uh, 480 milliseconds. Um, the drug is fairly well tolerated with kind of the classic hedgehog pathway uh, side effects with slightly more bone marrow suppression in the glastogen arm compared to the low-dose cytarabine alone arm. So grade 3 anemia was 41% versus 37%, febrile neutropenia 31% versus 22%, and grade 3 thrombocytopenia 30% versus 24%, so just slightly worse in the glastogen arm. Uh, nausea more common 29 versus 12%, uh, dysgesia or dysglacia, which is either altered taste perception or a lack of taste, uh, was uh, notably occurred in 21% in the glastogen arm compared to just 2% in low-dose cytarabine, hyponatremia in 11% compared to 0%, um, and then some muscle uh, abnormalities. So muscle pain, 30% versus 17% worth, worse with glastogen, and muscle spasms, 15% versus 5% also worse with glastogen. And then rash occurred in 20% with glastogen uh, compared to 7% with just the low-dose cytarabine arm. From an ADME standpoint, the only thing I want to mention is it is a 3-4 substrate like so many of our small, mo small molecule oral antineoplastics and thus is um, sensitive to 3-4 inhibitors and inducers from a drug interaction standpoint. Uh, so this is a really nice approval. Um, not a Low-dose cytarabine by itself is probably not what a lot of elderly people are treated with. Um, in, in my experience, it, you know, first of all, these people with AML older than the age of 60 have a very poor outcome compared to, to younger patients with AML. It's a very difficult disease to treat. It's a disease state, uh, this elderly AML, that's very understudied and underrepresented in clinical trials, so it's great that we have an approval for this. Um, in, in my experience, uh, physicians I work with tend to give patients three options, seven plus three, so standard induction chemo, uh, a hypomethylating agent like azacytidine or cytobine, or low-dose cytarabine. And the patients who get low-dose cytarabine are usually pretty ill and have a very poor performance status. 
Um, Low-dose atropine has moderate effects. The complete response rate in uh, what was reported by the FDA was 2%. I haven't seen this study published. Uh, you'll see maybe 10% in, uh, in other studies of this low-dose atropine. It's 20 milligram flat dose sub-QBID for 10 days. Um, but it does have an overall survival benefit, which is nice and does give uh, clinicians something to go off in this patient population. Now, that was approved on November 21st. The same day, November 21st, we also uh, saw the FDA approve venetoclax in an accelerated approval process in combination with either a histone deacylase inhibitor, a hypomethylating agent, uh, or um, low-dose RSC in newly diagnosed AML, again, 75 years or older, or not candidates for intensive chemotherapy. Um, so it's an accelerated approval, so it's based off of you know, response rate and is contingent upon future study to maintain its approval. Uh, I'll get to the, um, the studies in a second for the, each of these, but first I want to emphasize, because I think it's important, the dosing of venetoclax is different, whether it's used with uh, low-dositerabine or with a hypomethylene agent. So uh, there is a ramp-up. Now the ramp-up for venetoclax is to prevent tumor lysis syndrome. Uh, the ramp-up is pretty... Um, pretty long in CLL. It's 20 milligrams for a week, then 50 milligrams for a week, then 100 for a week, then 200 for a week, and then 400 uh, going forward starting week five. So it takes a full month to ramp up to the full dose. Now in AML, you may don't, you may don't have a month to get up to the, the treatment dose. Um, so there is a ramp up. It's shorter. And one way to get around um, or to allow for this shorter ramp up and to mitigate the risk of tumor lysis syndrome is cytoreduction. So the label says the drug should not be started venetoclax for AML, either with low-dositerabine or uh, azacitidine, uh, until the white, unless the white count is less than 25. And cytoreduction may need to happen. And basically what that means is hydroxyurea to decrease the white count down to 25, and that should help um, minimize the risk of tumor lysis. Hydroxyurea, I think of as mini chemo. It's not going to uh, drastically cause a ton of cytotoxicity, but some mild cytotoxicity that's reliable enough that you can get those counts down to hopefully safely start to struck with tumor lysis syndrome, prophylaxis with fluids, allopurinol, etc. Maybe, um, uh, maybe respiracase. Um, so the dose, uh, the ramp up is 100 milligrams on day one, 200 milligrams on day two, three, 400 milligrams on day three, and then four milligrams thereafter on azacitine or decidabine. Uh, however, on day four, the dose of venetoclax actually goes up to 600 milligrams if it's being used with low-dose cytarabine, presumably because you can tolerate a higher dose with low-dose cytarabine being a little bit less myelosuppressive than uh, the hypomethylene agent. Uh, to revisit the tumor lysis syndrome risk, tumor lysis syndrome labs are required at baseline and six to eight hours after any new dose. Um, and then 24 hours later. Um, so that means you got four to five days of having tumor lysis syndrome labs drawn twice a day, uh, which for a lot of places is going to require inpatient use of this drug, um, even though you could do lodocytarabine potentially because uh, it's sub-Q uh, as an outpatient or at home and venetoclax being PO as well. Uh, so probably for the first week these patients would be admitted. This is going to, of course, have... Um, um, pharmacy and therapeutics formulary uh, discussions down the road for venetoclax for AML for these elderly patients. The approvals are based on two uh, non-randomized studies, and the first one I'll talk about is with hypomethylene agents. So this was M14-358. Um, this was just looking at, you know, 
complete response rate and duration of benefit. So 67 patients received azacitine and venetoclax, 13 received decitabine. So the approval is for with azacitine or decitabine, but only 13 patients uh, have received this drug with decitabine. Complete response rates are 37% with azacitine and venetoclax, and then 54% in the decitabine arm, which looks uh, larger. Now, the complete response rate with incomplete hematologic recovery, which means the bone marrow looks clear from AML, but the platelets are still less than 100, although more than 50. ANC is more than 500, but less than 1,000. So complete response with incomplete hematologic recovery occurred in 24% with azacitine, 7.7% with decitabine. And if you add the complete response rate and complete response with incomplete hematologic response, you get basically 60% in both arms as far as benefit. Looks like more of those being true complete responses in decitabine, but again, only 13 patients on that arm. And the median duration of remission was five months. Uh, it does look like, from what's presented in the PI, that those patients under the age of 75 who would have had a comorbidity to be on this um, seem to have better rates of complete response, but not enough to really see um, if that's a true effect or an artifact. Uh, moving on to the low-dose C data, M14-37, same sort of uh, inclusion criteria, 75 or older, not a candidate for intensive chemo, ECOG 2 or 3, had to have a cardiopulmonary condition, hepatic renal impairment, or some other comorbidity that basically precluded uh, intensive chemo. Only 61 patients here, and again, this is with venetoclax 600 and low-dose cytarabine. The low-dose cytarabine dose is different than what we saw with glastigib. It's 20 milligrams per meter square sub Q daily for one to 10 days, which basically means uh, before uh, the, the low-dose cytarabine dosing with glastigib is 20 milligrams twice a day. Here, you're looking at 20 milligrams per meter squared once a day, so basically 40 milligrams once a day for most patients for 10 days. So about the same daily dose, um, but a more convenient dosage form, um, maybe less effective though, given that cytarabine is a cell cycle specific agent. Complete response rate was 21% with venetoclax and low-dose ARC. Uh, complete response with incomplete hematologic recovery, an identical 21%. So you're looking at a benefit rate of 40%. This patient population that received um, low-dose cytarabine was probably a little harder to treat because some of them had already failed a hypomethylene agent uh, in that arm as well. Uh, so between these two uh, approvals, we've got uh, glastigib in combination with lodocytarabine that has overall survival data um, showing it's more effective than lodocytarabine. Uh, we have venetoclax, the BCL2 inhibitor. It's already approved for, for CLL, um, been on the market for a while. Approved just based on response rate with hypomethylene agents um, and then with lodocytarabine. Um, so suddenly the treatment options for elderly patients who can't get 7 plus 3 has really, um, you know, exploded maybe too, uh, uh, too extreme of a word, but have, have increased drastically just uh, in, in the last week. And this is, uh, this is good for these patients. Um, it's good for clinicians to have more options because this is a disease state that's hard to treat in these patients. They don't tolerate treatments very well. They have lots of comorbidities. And to be quite honest, we don't have great data um, for these patients, and um, they're, they're understudied, so now that we, you could argue they're still understudied because these studies have an end of less than 100, but we do have some better evidence and some new drugs to try with, and, and we'll see down the, down the road if venetoclax does show an overall survival benefit. Um, um, 
in this disease state. If it does, if it, it truly is effective, this is a disease state that's pretty deadly, so it should not be hard to see an overall survival benefit if it's truly there, like with glastogen. You know, a median overall survival of eight months uh, is not very good, but it's twice as good as four months. Um, so if there really is benefit, it should be seen fairly easily in a well-designed study, which now they're gonna have to do to maintain their FDA approvals. I understand the accelerated approval process. Oh, it's time for a break from our sponsor, if we had a sponsor, but we don't. So moving on, uh, on November 20th, uh, the FDA approved uh, imapolumab, imapolumab for primary hemophagocytic lymphohistocytosis. Um, and this drug is an interferon gamma blocking monoclonal antibody. So it requires TB testing, tuberculosis, before starting, as well as herpes zoster, PCP, and fungal prophylaxis. I won't talk more about that drug for time's sake and because it's a disease state that I've never seen and before this approval had seldom heard of. Uh, November 16th, brintuximab vidotin is approved with chemo. Uh, basically, brintuximab takes the place of encrystine in CHOP in this approval for untreated anaplastic large cell lymphoma or CD30 positive peripheral T cell lymphoma. Now, brintuximab was previously approved in um, systemic anaplastic large cell lymphoma, kind of the same disease state after relapsing or after they failed treatment. So this has been moved up into a frontline regimen here. Um, it showed the primary endpoint of the study was progression-free survival, which they showed, also showed an overall survival benefit, although that wasn't the primary endpoint of the study. Okay, and then finally, we have larotrectinib, which was approved by the FDA on November 26th. And this is also an accelerated approval, so this data is just going to be response rate data. And this was approved for solid tumors with NRTK gene fusion, uh, who have uh, in adults or peds in metastatic solid tumors uh, for which surgery would cause severe morbidity or they have no alternative treatment. And RTK is neurotrophic receptor tyrosine kinase, and these are fusion genes. This is the second tissue agnostic cancer approval by the FDA, the other one being, I believe it was pembrolizumab for microsatellite instability or mismatch repair deficit cancers. And that study, uh, that approval was mostly based off of GI and colon and rectal cancer patients. This is, is more broad, looking at these fusion genes of NRTK. Um, by the way, the, the word agnostic comes from the ancient Greek for unknown or unknowable. And I, there's probably some irony there as we learn more and more about cancers. We're now approving drugs based on a word that means unknown. So what is neurotrophic receptor tyrosine kinase? Well, I'm glad that you asked uh, if you were listening on your commute or in your car or on the treadmill and asked that question. So there are three genes. There's NTRK1, NTRK2, and NTRK3 that encode three proteins, NRKA, NRKB, and NRKC, and they're involved in neuronal development and differentiation, as well as embryonic development. Um, and they can be overexpressed in some cancers, for example, overexpression of, of NTRK or NRKA in neuroblastoma um, is seen, um, doesn't seem to be mutations of this protein, slice variants, slice variants have some potential ability, uh, other mutations, maybe they have uh, an impact or not. But fusion genes, so this is where one gene gets placed next to the NRK, NTRK gene, uh, causing constitutive activation without uh, the need for ligand binding. So basically the on switch is always on after this fusion gene. And this is seen um, 
kind of there are three tiers. There's a great review article about this that I, that I tweeted from uh, from my account uh, at Farm Deaton, uh on Twitter. Um, so the first tier is this fusion gene is found in more than 90% of cases in these cancers. Uh, so certain salivary gland tumors, uh, like memory analog of secretory carcinoma of salivary glands, uh, secretory breast cancer, and infantile fibrosarcoma. To the point that some uh, some scientists say this is these fusion genes for those disease states. So secretory breast cancer, infantile fibro, fibrosarcoma. It's almost like the BCR able translocation in CML. It's like pathognomonic. If you have that mutation, this is the disease. All right, that's the first tier. The second tier is 5 to 25% of these cancers have diffusion genes. So some thyroid cancers, like papillary thyroid cancer, especially in kids, um, a non-GIST, non-gastrointestinal stromal tumor soft tissue sarcomas. And the final tier is these fusion genes uh, are seen in less than 5% of a whole bunch of disease states. So breast, lung, head and neck cancer, colorectal, high-grade gliomas, renal cell carcinoma, pancreatic, and even some AML and some ALL. Uh, and the approval is an accelerated approval based on the first 55 patients approved on uh, accrued on three different clinical trials. Um, and these were open label, which means everyone knew what they were taking, and single arm, so not a comparison study. So of these 55 patients, 22% had a salivary gland tumor, 20% had a soft tissue sar car sarcoma, another 5% had GIST but did not have uh, the normal CKIP mutation, I believe. 13% with infantile fibrosarcoma, 9% with thyroid, 7% each with colon, lung, and melanoma, respectively. Um, 22% of these patients were younger than 15 years of age, and the age range of this study, the widest I've seen, 0.3 years, so four months all the way up to 76 years. Um, about half of them had an NRTK1 fusion gene mutation, about half had an NTRK3 fusion gene, not much with the second one. Uh, and these uh, fusions are mostly detected by next generation sequencing, not so much fish. Uh, and a review article I read that I posted talks about how many of the NGS uh, tests might miss NTRK2 and 3 fusion genes because they're a little harder to detect. Um, so getting to the, the efficacy here. So based on the central assessments, not the investigators, but the people who, who didn't maybe weren't directly involved in the patient's care, um, analyzing assessment, 75% overall response rate in the New England Journal of Publication for this drug, for the same folks, uh, that was back in February 22nd of 2018 by Drillin and colleagues. They said it was a 13% response rate, complete response rate. That number's now 22% based on what uh, the FDA has published, uh, which makes me think some of those early partial responses have now converted to complete responses or else there is just a grievous uh, discrepancy in the data. But more likely, some of the PRs became complete responses. And the duration of response was six months or more in 73%. 9 months or more in 63%, and 12 months or more in 39%. And some patients uh, had responses that lasted well beyond 20 months. So certainly some of these, re some of these responses are very, very durable. And uh, the New England Journal of Medicine publication describes two kids with infantile fibrosarcoma who would have had to have had something like a whole leg amputation, but because of taking the drug and the response they had, they were able to have a smaller surgery and a less disfiguring surgery, which is, which is wonderful. Uh, the dose is 100 milligrams PO uh, BID with or without food, or for kids, 100 milligrams per meter squared 
POBID with or without food, as long as your BSA is less than one. It comes as a 25 and 100 milligram capsules, as well as a 20 mg per mil solution for those tiny tots. Uh, there are warnings, precautions for neurotoxicity, elevated LFTs, and not surprisingly, based on NTRK's role in embryogenesis, embryofetal toxicity. Neurotoxicity occurred in 53%. Uh, that was a grade 3 and 6%, grade 4 and 0.4%. Um, it's and this could be dizziness, headache, delirium, encephalopathy, but dizziness and headache were the most common. I will note that mice that are, are engineered not to express NTRK um, often die because they don't feel pain. It's that weird syndrome that some humans have where they don't feel pain and they, they, they do crazy things, they get themselves hurt. Um, so it's been suggested by some that after stopping this drug that patients might have an increased pain sensitivity uh, because maybe they have a decreased pain sensitivity while taking it. And of course, that would not be a side effect. Not feeling pain would not be an adverse reaction. Uh, it might be a positive reaction if you had, say, pain from your cancer. So it'd be interesting to look at patients uh, with NTRK fusion gene cancers and looking at opioid requirements maybe on this drug, although those could go down with disease response as well. Um, in fact, there were some monoclonal antibodies targeting um, this uh, NTRK gene being studied for analgesic purposes, so there might be something to that. Um, fatigue occurred in 37%, nausea and vomiting in 29 and 26%, weight gain in 15%, and the weight gain is believed to be an on-target toxicity based on laboratory studies in mice. Um, got a pretty short half-life, as you might expect for a drug that's taken twice in about three-hour half-life. It is a 3A4 substrate and a mild 3A4 inhibitor, so it does increase the midazolam air in the curve by 1.7 fold. So for very narrow therapeutic index 4 substrates, I might call midazolam one. Um, there is caution recommended with larotrectinib, which uh, I'll say is one of the easier tyrosine kinase drugs to say. Well, that's what I have today. That's 25 minutes of, uh, of FDA updates from the last couple weeks. Uh, we're into the holiday season now, so uh, I'll be recording some of these things in advance. Uh, so for listening over the holidays, uh, for your travels, hopefully back home to spend time with family and friends. Um, thanks for listening. Follow me, as I said, at FarmDeetNim. Follow the podcast at OncoFarmPod. And uh, please go on uh, the iTunes store. Give us a five-star uh, rating review the podcast tell us what you would like to hear more of. I have had a request about uh, the use of DOAX in cancer, and it's something that I'll certainly get to actually working on a little bit of scholarship with that uh, as we speak. And I hope to see you all a little further down the road.